Welcome to the Investigation Guru, where real-life PIs Sean and Dana bring you to the darker side of true crime investigations. Stories so horrific, it's hard to believe they actually happened. But truth is often darker than fiction. Real life can sometimes involve lies, betrayal, abduction, and even torture and death. These stories will take you on a journey through some of the world's darkest and most notorious true crime investigations. The Investigation Guru starts now. Here's Sean and Dana. Hello and welcome to the Investigation Guru podcast. This is the official podcast for Red Door Investigations. My name is Sean and today we're going to be talking about the case of Jim Jones and the murder and massacre at Jonestown. Now, it's commonly believed that uh, a lot of his followers, or I guess the ones that died at Jonestown, they committed suicide. But uh, I don't think that is really the case. I think Jim Jones actually murdered all of those people. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some of Jones's personality and why he was able to get all of these people to follow him, what it was about the, uh, the church, if you really even want to call it that. It, it wasn't really... It started out as a religious organization, but I think later on it kind of morphed more into more into a political organization. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of his uh, political beliefs and his uh, beliefs in communism and socialism and things like that. But uh, really, the the main focus of today is going to be discussing exactly the events that led up to this uh, this horrible event and how Jones was able to to manipulate. And how he was able to get all of these people to willfully and uh, almost happily kill themselves based on based on his word alone. So uh, it's a very very interesting case. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have heard heard about this. Again, there, this is a, a big one that you know has a, a lot of coverage. It, it took quite a while to research all of this and get all of these get all of these facts straight because there is there is quite a bit of, of conjecture out there and quite a bit of opinion. Um, and kind of weeding through a lot of that and making sure that uh, this that this episode did uh, this this subject matter justice. I don't want to gloss over any of the things that, uh, that 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 happened, but I also don't want to dwell on on solely the event that uh, that happened on that day. So we're going to talk about the life of Jim Jones and a little bit about uh, again what uh, what pushed him and what motivated him to do what he did, where he came from, his family life. And uh, also, kind of the the um, the ecology and the environment of what it was actually like inside that church and what um, what the members experienced because it was not uh, it was not your normal average everyday church. Uh, again, I, I I mentioned before that this was this was really more of kind of a political organization. I would think uh, they organized marches and you know, Jim Jones was, uh, he held up, actually held public office there for a little while. So, uh, he was really, really involved in politics. We're going to talk about his, his political affiliations and his work with the mayor's office of San Francisco and things like that. So, uh, the, the idea that this was a religious organization, I, I think it, I think Jim Jones had kind of a religious background and really that's kind of the way that he, uh, he uh, wanted to approach this, but it, it warped itself. And uh, he, he began using it as a means of controlling people and began using it as a way to um, exert a lot of influence over people's lives because uh, religion is a very, very powerful 
influencing motive in, in many people's lives. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, go ahead and get started. James Warren Jones was born on May 13th, 1931 in Crete, Indiana, to James Thurman Jones, a World War I veteran, and Lynetta Putnam. Uh, his father, Jones, uh, described his father as not a very nice man. Uh, he was a drunk. He had a very, very bad drinking problem. And a lot of people think that this was uh, uh, the result of injuries he might have sustained in the war. But uh, again, we're not really exactly sure. We think, you know, maybe he was just not a, up to everyday life. And that's kind of how uh, a lot of people who, who have drinking problems um, tend to cope with the stresses. And so uh, Jim Jones Sr. was not really very involved in, uh, in, in Jim Jones's life. Uh, he was present, but again, he was uh, really neglectful and really, although he was physically there, he wasn't really emotionally there at all. He was a racist, and uh, he was actually even rumored to have been a member of the uh, of the KKK, which had, uh, you know, the KKK was very, very popular in Depression-era Indiana, where Jim Jones grew up. Uh, Jones recounted how he and his father would regularly fight and argue on the issue of race. Uh, both of them were, again, very, very set in their ways. Uh, Jim Jones Sr. was uh, really... Just, just kind of an asshole. Um, uh, again, you know, being a member of, or reportedly, allegedly, being a member of of the KKK, you know, it, it's not it's not a secret what his you know what his views uh, of of race relations were like. This is not a progressive era in terms of of race relations. This was the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties in the Midwest. So uh, race relations were were not they they probably weren't as bad as they were maybe down in the South, but. Uh, he claimed that he did not speak with his father for many, many years after his father refused to allow one of Jones's black friends into his house. Now, this may have been uh, much of the fuel for Jones's later views on race relations and why he was such a, a big, huge proponent of integration. That was one of the, the fundamental tenets of, of the People's Temple Church was that it was going to be all inclusive. And this really got him uh, a lot of ire and a lot of uh, disdain from from the community, and it eventually caused him to flee Indiana and head to California. So uh, Jim Jones was really, you know, for all the all the bad things that he did, he was really very progressive and really ahead of his time when it came to uh, to race relations. And it was very very important to him that uh, that his congregation be completely mixed and not segregated at all. He had a real big problem with uh, with the current views of the time that uh, had such a foundation and such a basis in racial segregation. Uh, his family experienced severe financial hardships and moved to the nearby town of Lynn, Indiana, in 1934 due to difficulties experienced by his family during the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression, again, uh, it just seemed to be one, one thing after another. Uh, his father was out of work for most, if not all, of Jim Jones's life. Um, again, he, was, he had a very bad drinking problem, so his father was really not much of, of, a, of a figure. In, in Jim's life or in really in the family. He, he was pretty much emotionally and uh, mentally checked out. So uh, his, his mother did, uh, did a great deal of the raising of Jim. And um, again, it was, it's the depression. Things are, are, not, are not good <laughs> uh, socially and financially. So the Jones family did, uh, did the best they could. Uh, they lived in a rundown shack without, without any electricity or running water. And uh, Jones actually looking back on his childhood later on in his life, he described uh, these conditions as causing him, quote, a great deal of pain. 
because life was just so hard and his father was so absent and just so mean. Uh, he berated Jones and belittled him regularly, just not a very nice drunk at all. And uh, Jones would later use this as a means of kind of identifying with his, uh, with his poor congregants. And again, he really wanted to stress that his, his congregation was not going to be one of these big, huge elite churches. This was a church of the people. And he had a, a very, a very socialistic, uh, even borderline communist um, viewpoint of of where he thought society should be. And one of those is that the desegregation was was mandatory. Um, he, he was really, really big on wanting to make this as as open of a community as he possibly could. And he, he attracted a lot. Uh, th- this this message resonated with a lot of people the poor people especially, and uh, of course, you know, minorities, African-Americans, uh, really flocked to Jones because this was one of the, the few uh, white, I guess, white churches, white um, ministers who would really have a, a great deal of pull for a lot of the African-American community. So this was, uh, he once he really got started, uh, this, this congregation took off like wildfire. Uh, Jones was a voracious reader, and uh, he studied uh, various world communist and socialist leaders such as Stalin, Marx, Mao Zedong, Gandhi, and even Hitler, who he reportedly researched as a means of learning how to control a crowd, manipulate members of his congregation, and make them subservient to him. So uh, really, it was kind of, this was a means to, almost a means to an end. And again, you know, although Jones had a, a great deal of religious insight into how how he viewed the world, the church in and of itself really was more of a social statement. And he, he really enjoyed uh, learning from these people who were able to manipulate and control and who were able to fire up a crowd like Hitler and Stalin and all these people who could work a crowd into a frenzy. And they really, he really fundamentally, he wanted to be adored. He wanted to be um, looked upon as a, a great person and an insightful man and someone who really uh, was able to influence people and who could really carry out this fervor of of what he uh, what he deemed to be of his, of his message. He had a very very lonely childhood, and uh, when he was still a young man, he looked for ways to uh, to escape this loneliness and the misery uh, that he experienced. Um, again, his family life was was just horrendous, and so he would he would look for ways to really kind of escape. Uh, his childhood acquaintances would later describe him as a, quote, really weird kid. Uh, he apparently kind of stood out as someone who did not behave according to uh, the norms of the day. Consequently, he had difficulty relating to other children, and he spent a great deal of time alone and turned to religion as a means of connecting with other people. He became obsessed with religion and death, and people allegedly said that he frequently held funerals for small animals on his parents' property. And that he even stabbed a cat to death so that he could have a funeral for it. And of course, when he had these funerals, he would invite all of his all of his classmates to kind of observe him standing up in front of them and speaking. And, and this again is is really where he kind of got comfortable in front of a crowd. Um, I think that that you know even at this early age, he was uh, very very interested in being able to manipulate people and have people view him as someone who was great. Uh, Jones's parents separated, and Jones relocated with his mother to Richmond, Indiana, so he moved again. Uh, he was a very good student and graduated from Richmond High School in December of 1948 early and with honors. After graduation, Jones took a job as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital, 
And his bosses there held him in very, very high regard. They, uh, you know, he was a very good worker and they really enjoyed having him on the staff. However, fellow staff members later recalled that Jones would oftentimes exhibit, quote, disturbing behavior. So again, this kind of odd behavior would begin to manifest and it was really off-putting to quite quite a few people. And a lot of people looked at him with, with a great deal of suspicion because he would, the way that he looked at people and the way that he spoke to people... Some of the things that he did was was very, very odd, was very, very weird, and it gradually became much more intense. One former co-worker even recalled an incident where Jones manhandled a patient in traction while shaving him, resulting in the patient's injury with a straight razor and then giving a menacing look to the co-worker. So the co-worker kind of walked in on Jim Jones shaving a patient at this hospital that he was in charge of, and he was apparently getting quite physical and perhaps even violent with this patient. And when this coworker walked in and caught him, uh, Jim turned around and gave, gave this coworker a very, very dark, very, very menacing, very, very aggressive look and really kind of disturbed uh, this coworker. Uh, one thing that did come out of his time at, at the hospital was that he met uh, nurse Marceline Baldwin, who would later become his wife in 1949. And they would remain married to each other until both of their deaths at Jonestown founding of the People's Temple. Uh, When Jones was 20 years old, he began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Uh, He was very interested in communist and socialist ideas, which stemmed from his readings of Marx and others as a teenager. Uh, He became frustrated with the persecution of accused communists, especially Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, Jones would would often ask himself, he would kind of look around at at where society was at that day, and Jones asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? And the thought was, again, to, to infiltrate the church, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, you can get your, your message out. And the church, again, was a very, very strong vehicle for attracting an audience. And so once he had the audience, he kind of, again, made this pivot and made this shift from discussing religious topics to really kind of discussing more social and political philosophies that he held. So that's exactly what he decided to do. Uh, he was actually surprised when a Methodist district superintendent offered to train him and give him kind of this chance on preaching. He really kind of gave him uh, his big break. And in 1952, he became a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church. He later left that church because they would not let him integrate blacks into his congregation. So again, Jones being very, very firm and very, very resilient in his desire to have a completely integrated and a completely all-inclusive congregation, the people that, he, that were training him, uh, the people that were, you know, kind of giving him this opportunity, giving him his big break, they did not want that in their church. So Jones bolted. Uh, he didn't want any part of that at all. And again, he, he was really kind of ahead of his time on this. And uh, this was not a popular opinion of the day by any means. So he, he was really standing up for what he believed in which again was, you know, one of the few good things that, that he really did. Jones took it upon himself to organize this, this huge uh, kind of religious convention that uh, was set to take place between June 11th and 15th of 1956. And it was there that he was able to kind of form and begin his own church. So he had gotten his feet wet and he had, he had uh, kind of discovered that he had, he had the talent, he had the goods to, to speak in front of people and people were responding and so he decided to, you know, once he left that, that kind of student preacher position, he decided to go out and really give it a shot. 
and see if he had the goods to attract a congregation. In deciding what to what to call his church, he uh, he actually went through several names before he finally decided on People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, and that was what he called his church. And uh, he, uh, of course, later shortened it to just People's Temple. Uh, he was ordained as a minister officially in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God, and in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. So he uh, it became official. He was a full fledged ordained minister. And now he was able to kind of go out and, and do whatever he wanted. Uh, around 1960, Jones began to get involved in local Indianapolis politics. So, you know, I told you that he was really more of a, of, of a politician than a preacher, I would think. Um, and, and getting people to like him and getting people to respond to his message was really the, uh, the driving force in why he did all of this. All of the church and all of the healings and, you know, the preaching, that was all just smoke and mirrors to really kind of um, serve his his main ulterior motive, which was to manipulate people and which was to get people to follow him and which was to get people to view him as a influencing power. Um, he was appointed director of the local human rights commission by the mayor of Indianapolis. And in this new political position, uh, Jones found a way to get his message of desegregation out to the public on local radio and television programs. So again, this, this message of desegregation, he was just hammering this home over and over and over again. It was really, really, really important to him. Jones began helping to racially integrate various institutions, including churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the police department, a theater, an amusement park, and even the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. When swastikas were painted on the homes of two local black families, Jones walked through the neighborhood and comforted the local black communities and counseled white families not to move to keep it there and not really go anywhere that, uh, you know, though at that time, the white families ha- held a lot of influence and a, a lot more privilege and, and I guess authority and power than did the black families. But uh, seeing this, this was, you know, I, I guess the modern day version of, uh, of, of burning crosses, you know, in the face of all that intimidation, Jim Jones took it upon himself to, to walk his ass right out there and make sure that, you know, the, the black Families there knew that they weren't alone and knew that they were, were you know, they had a place and their place was, was with him. And he also uh, spoke to a lot of the, of the white families and, and asked them, you know, please don't leave. Uh, you know, you, you add, I guess, legitimacy to this area. And again, you know, this was, this was the 50s. So the times, you know, they were much different than they were today. He also even set up sting operations to catch restaurants who refused to serve black customers. So he would he would uh, you know try to get out there and, and expose people who wouldn't do what he felt was right. Uh, Jones received considerable cr- criticism in Indiana from his integrationist views, and white-owned businesses were very very critical of him. Again, this was not a not a popular opinion that that Jones held, and he was really kind of a, a trailblazer in in race relations. And you know, I don't, I don't know how much you want to credit Jones for actually bringing about some social change, but uh, I think that he he, play, he played at least some part. And you know, he did what he could to uh, to really bring this about. And again, this was you know, of course, one of the few things that he did that were that were good or pro social. But he he really really was a big proponent of this desegregation and this uh, anti-race division. Uh, when a swastika was placed on the temple building itself and a stick of dynamite was left in a temple coal pile and a dead cat was thrown at Jones's house after receiving a threatening phone call. 
Alfred, none of this phased him. He, he just, he just kept doing exactly what he was going to do. And, and he was not going to be intimidated. He was not going to be threatened. He was not going to be stopped. And this was just really his, his mission uh, going forward. And so they, you know, again, the, the powers that be in, uh, in, in the area did not like his message. And so they tried to really intimidate him and they tried to really shut him down. And he became, he had a big target on his back, but you know, try as they might, he, they did not, they did not dissuade him one, one lick. In addition to their, to their own biological son, uh, whose name was Stephen, who was born in uh, June of 1959, uh, Jones and his wife adopted actually several non-white children. He referred to his household as kind of his rainbow family because there were, there were many different colors. He further stated that quote, integration is a more personal thing with me now. It is a question of my son's future, end quote. He also implemented this in the temple and began also referring to his congregation as his rainbow family. In 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, and they named him Jim Jones Jr. They also adopted a white son, originally named Timothy Glenn Tupper, whose birth mother was a member of the church. They also adopted a Native American girl and three Korean American children, which gave them a total of seven children, one biological and six adopted. Kicking off his paranoia, and conspiracy theory beliefs, Jim later in his life really became very, very paranoid. Um, as, as much of these, you know, these cult leaders and, and really public figures tend to do, he started, you know, believing in, in a lot of these conspiracy theories and a lot of, you know, ideas that, that people were after him and he was, he was being targeted, which, you know, judging from where he came from, that's a pretty valid conclusion. But he, I, I think he kind of took it to, to a higher degree and started thinking that, you know, a lot of the, the government was was constantly after him and they were spying on him and things like that so in light of kind of the these beliefs and these ideas that, that started to really manifest themselves uh jones told his indiana congregation that quote the world will be engulfed by nuclear war on july 15th 1967 so we have uh we have the check off the doomsday prediction mark on your bingo card of cult um and there we go so he, uh, he predicted that the world would end on on june 15 1967 and that it would end by by nuclear war he said that this would lead to a new socialist Eden on Earth and that the only place they would be safe was in Northern California. He'd apparently read in, a, uh, in an episode of Esquire that uh, Redwood, California was, was a very, very safe and progressive area of, of the country. And so that's exactly what he decided to do. And he picked up and he, he bought a whole bunch of, of old Greyhound buses packed up all of his all of his congregation members you know those that those who would come with him which was a great many of them and they drove across the country to to uh, Redwood Valley California which was near near the city of Ukiah uh, Jones also taught that uh, quote those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment socialism end quote he would infuse his sermons with his socialist and marxist beliefs and once preached that quote if you're born in capitalist america racist america fascist america then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin, end quote. And again, the, the socialist beliefs were very, very conducive to his desegregation and social movement that he really wanted to see come about in America. And this is really when, again, the, the message of the church, you know, his, his sermons began to take on more of this political stint and what he viewed, how he viewed the world and a lot of his conspiracy theories started trickling in 
and and what you know he thought that you know there was always someone out there who was who was going to come and come and try and stop their message and stop their progressive movement and you know he was always a target and then they were they were always just just on the outside just just about to to come get us and they had to remain hyper vigilant and they really had to you know keep going and and maintain this strong front and really make sure that you know they you know if if they slacked off or if they backed off or if they stopped doing what they were doing, then they would be overtaken and that would be the end. But, uh, he, he really wanted to, <laughs> he really wanted to push this, this, this Marxist communist socialist, um, ideal that, that he thought that the world really needed. And he thought that he was going to try to make the world a better place by, by pushing these ideas onto his growing, almost exponentially growing congregation. He even began deriding Christianity itself as a, quote, fly away religion. So he was really, again, starting to, you know, pull himself back from preaching in the normal sense of the word and more of a, of a politician, you know, speaking to his people. He rejected the Bible as being a tool to oppress women and non-whites and denouncing a, quote, sky god who was no god at all. He even went so far as to toss the Bible to the ground and daring God to strike him down right then and there. And he made this big, you know, big to-do, this big charade, and he took his Bible up on the pulpit and uh, he, he tossed it out into the middle of the congregation and it, it landed, boom, in the, on, the, on the ground and uh, almost kind of taunted God to, to strike him down because, you know, this book has, has been, you know, keeping his people of color down for, for centuries and, you know, it held no power and all of this type of thing. And, you know, asking, you know, did, did, did you just see lightning come out of the sky and strike me down? And of course it didn't, but this, this was really, really shocking. And this got a whole lot of people's attention. And, um, you know, when he did this, the, the whole room was just kind of dead quiet. Uh, it was a very, very theatrical, very, very, um, effective tool of effective message and of course you know taunting and tempting god and all of this for people who who are religious uh this is a very big no-no tempting god is is almost tantamount to sacrilege or blasphemy and you know you're not you should not ever tempt god or taunt god that is not something that smart people do and so jones was was really really pushing the edge of of even christianity of christian views and and uh, the, the ability to send his message out there was really, really what started out as, as a very, something that was rooted or based in Christianity and religion made that switch, made that transition very, very dramatically. And even though this was something that Christians, you know, held very, very dearly, you know, don't, don't tempt God, don't taunt God, Jones did it proudly and used it as a means to show that he was kind of above rebuke and that God was an illusion. And this is when he really started to preach blasphemy. Uh, God didn't exist. And God was, you know, a, a made-up social construct that, that was used as a tool by the elite to, you know, keep the everyday man ground down. Uh, that God was, you know, this, this, quote, sky God, and that, you know, that God doesn't exist. And he was, he was simply just a tool that, that, was, that was used in an effort to control other people. And he kept it up. Uh, he began preaching that he was the reincarnation of Gandhi, Jesus, Buddha, and even Lenin. Uh, this is, 
again, you know, the, the, once once he had all of these people kind of roped in and really baited on his hook, he really took it to took it to the extreme and started going out uh, out in left field, and it it really really became a show almost, uh, um, just this circus of what uh, what all this guy was going to say next. Uh, he was quoted as saying, "Quote: Some people see a great deal of God in my body." They see Christ in me, a hope of glory, end quote. He said another time, quote, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I'll be your father, for those of you who don't have a father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God, end quote. And again, he said, quote, you're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory, and that's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. End quote. And once Jones had moved this temple to California, uh, numbers climbed exponentially, and the new branches began opening in cities including San Francisco, San Fernando, and Los Angeles. So he was really, really gaining a following. This this idea of social reconstructionism and this idea of socialism and you know desegregation this really, really resonated with a whole bunch of people, and uh, people really began to respond. He eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco, which was a major center for radical protest movements. And he would uh, quote rent out temple members for protests um, if someone needed a bunch of people to protest anything that Jones agreed with. And he would send hundreds of temple members to chant and carry signs. Uh, this was kind of that day's version of, of crowds on demand. And, you know, if you needed someone to, to uh, you know, protest or shout out or um, do anything like that, he would, he would send you out a couple hundred temple members. And, you know, they were polite. They were on time. And they did what they were supposed to do. And uh, that was it. So, again, he, he really started to curry favor with a lot of a lot of people in in that city. He continued his influence in politics, helping to elect George Moscone as mayor of San Francisco in 1975. Moscone subsequently appointed James as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. So now Jones had his first public office. Jones was able to gain contact with prominent politicians at the local and the national level. He held meetings with Walter Mondale, and even First Lady Rosalind Carter gave him an audience. Jones gained a lot of attention and notoriety during this time, and the temple membership, again, skyrocketed exponentially. Along with his notoriety came a great deal of scrutiny. There began to be rumors circling that Jones and the temple were not all that they seemed to be. Two reporters for the San Francisco Chronicle, Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy, wrote a scathing article on the People's Temple that included allegations by temple defectors of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. I'll put a copy of this, uh, of this article in the show notes. So you'll be able to look over that and read that at your leisure. Uh, when Jones heard about this article and what it might do to his image and reputation within the community, Jones and several hundred followers abruptly decided to move to a compound they had built in Guyana, which is a country in South America. They officially called this area the People's Temple Agricultural Product, but it was informally known as Jonestown. The formation and operation of Jonestown. Jones started building Jonestown several years before the Kilduff article was even published. He started to feel the uh, social and political pressure, the scrutiny being placed on him based on 
a lot of a lot of reports that had started coming out of abuse and allegations and things like that of actually what was going on inside the church. Uh, he would hold um, really beatings, and it was it was kind of a a little fight club, if you will. Um, you know, if anyone had misbehaved or anything, they would they would be called up to the front, and they would have to fight each other and uh, literally fist fight. And Jones would sit up there and kind of you know look over his sunglasses and and watch with interest. And he was always kind of uh, he had a big smile on his face. He really really enjoyed these uh, these public displays. Um, there's there was even talk of of him um, you know sexually abusing or uh, you know even raping. Um, many of the men and women in the church. So there, there was uh, a lot of talk of sexual misconduct. Uh, he would hold uh, little, I guess, uh, disciplinary hearings where a lot of the uh, church members would get together and uh, he would call up perhaps a female and ask her to completely, you know, take all of her clothes off. He would sit there and, you know, mock her, mock her body and uh, talk about all of the things that that were wrong, you know, her breasts and her her stomach and her legs and all of the things where she, you know, he felt that she fell short. And so a lot of these reports, you know, it, it didn't take long for a lot of these things to really get out that a lot of this behavior was inappropriate, to say the least, and uh, potentially even illegal. So he started to draw a lot of uh, scrutiny and, uh, you know, legal attention on on what he was uh, allowing to happen in his church. So he took that and he, uh, he decided several years before the actual move that, that he, he wanted to, to get the hell out of Dodge. And so he started researching areas to take the uh, the church and he settled on, on Guiana in, in South America. He promoted Jonestown as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Jones purported to establish it as a model communist community, adding that the temple comprised, quote, the purest communists there are, end quote. Uh, Jones did not permit members to leave the settlement, so he took a small group at first down there and had them start construction, start building. And once they were down there, he did not want them to leave. And this will come up again uh, later on uh, when we talk about uh, the, the final days. And uh, this was, a, a, again, a very, very common norm or rule in, in a lot of uh, cultist type of environments. Um, you know, he started to cut them off from from their family and started to remove them from uh, any kind of news of the outside world. So they were very, very insulated community and really kind of the only means of outside communication, the only uh, news that they had of the outside was from Jones himself. So he, he really controlled every single aspect of, of their lives and, and they were completely insulated and really just lived the community, lived, breathed. They, they weren't allowed to talk on the phone. They weren't allowed to watch television, listen to the radio, anything like that. And all of their, all of their news or information came from, from Jones himself. Uh, they were forced to give up their passports and they worked 18 to 20 hours a day, uh, just literally working all the time, trying to get this project ready and get this area ready for the, the uh, 900 people that would, that would later come down. They were completely self-contained and self-reliant, so they had everything they needed. They produced everything that they needed, all of their food, all of their clothing, um, all of their medical care, everything was taken care of right there at the site. So he he had doctors, he had nurses, he had people who could farm, he had people who could, you know, uh, build, you know, the structures and actually, you know, create the the buildings and things like that, uh, carpenters and engineers and those types of individuals. So they they needed no outside help whatsoever. 
and uh, they were completely able to, you know, uh, sustain themselves. They needed nothing from the outside world, and they provided everything they, they needed for themselves. They were truly, um, you know, on their own and completely isolated. In the compound, there was also a speaker system where Jones could make announcements to the entire community. And of course, only Jones was allowed to use it, and he used it day and night to spread his conspiracy theories about the corrupt nature of the U.S. and how the temple was a target. The temple was always a target. Everyone was always out to get them. And uh, he knew that, you know, he kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew that this was, you know, he was starting to draw some unwanted attention. Jones began to propagate his belief in what he termed translation. Once his followers settled in Jonestown, claiming that he and his followers would all die together, move to another planet, and live blissfully. So check off another box on your weird cult behavior bingo card. Uh, He talked about these things constantly over the loudspeaker. it, It was just no matter where you were, in the compound, you could hear it all the time. It, he went day and night. when He was talking to them when they were falling asleep. He was talking to them when they got up in the morning. He was talking to them when they worked. He was talking to them when they ate. Um, it was just always constant, constant, constant Jim Jones in their ear. And he was, again, the only, the, the only voice of, or the only source of any kind of outside news or, or any kind of um, information that they got. They weren't allowed to you know, watch television or contact any, any of the members or any, any, anything outside of the area itself. And uh, back in the States, the pressure again was, was really heating up. They, they began to get word that, uh, you know, he was trying to escape and, and start building this kind of fundamentalist area down in South America and uh, taking a lot of, a lot of American citizens with him. And, you know, the family members of temple members were, were really starting to become very, very concerned because a lot of their family members were deciding to leave and go over there with him and kind of start this new life. And, you know, they were they were starting to wonder and worry if they would even ever see or hear from their family members again. Jones began to draw increasing scrutiny from the public and from concerned family members who claimed you have received reports from former temple members who escaped, like Deborah Layton, who provided an affidavit detailing crimes by the temple and substandard living conditions at Jonestown. In November of 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. His delegation included relatives of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and reporters from various newspapers. This group arrived in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown on November 15th, and two days later they were transported to Jonestown in a tractor transporter. Jones held a reception for the delegation that evening at the Central Pavilion in Jonestown, and it was really kind of a big, huge celebration and a party. And he wanted to kind of send off the image that everyone was happy there and, you know, everything was was going great and, and they were singing and, and dancing and everyone was laughing and they had a big, huge feast and just really kind of rolling out the red carpet for this congressman who had come down there to to really look at what was going on because he had, you know, received word that a lot of bad things were going on. And Congressman Ryan was kind of those uh, fringe congressmen who really kind of made a name for himself by doing a lot of things that a lot of other politicians might not do. For instance, he, uh, in order to kind of investigate the prison reform and prison justice, he actually became a, he actually locked himself in, um, in a prison. But I believe it was for something like eight days. And he lived the life of a prisoner to really kind of get a first-hand account of, of what was going on so that he could really you know, make some informed decisions. 
And so he was, he was really more of kind of a hands-on uh, type of politician, not something that, that we really have much of today, but uh, he was really kind of one of those guys that wanted to get his hands dirty and make sure that, you know, he, he wanted to experience things firsthand. Congressman Ryan uh, made a speech during this ceremony praising Jones and saying that, quote, the few members that I have spoken with say that this is the best thing that ever happened to them, end quote. And this, of course, received thunderous applause uh, from the members who were there. And a lot of the, the group that was with Ryan kind of thought that this was a little bit rehearsed and manufactured and seemed not, not genuine, that it was over the top. The delegation members felt that the, this performance had been rehearsed and that it was not a true reflection of the, uh, of the conditions in the camp, that they had been almost coerced into this performance that everything was wonderful and everything was grand and everyone was so happy and ecstatic to be there. And it was, you know, the, the best thing that ever happened to them. Uh, during the reception celebration, uh, Temple member Vernon Gosney actually passed a note meant for Ryan to NBC reporter Don Harris, uh, requesting assistance for himself and another Temple member, Monica Bagby, in leaving the settlement. So he uh, he kind of pulled one of them, you know, by the, by the arm and, and handed them uh, a note, secretly handed them a note saying, you know, we want to leave. We, we do not want this. This is not how things really are. And this was, uh, again, the, really the first sign to any of the delegation members that, uh, that things were not, were not what they seemed on the surface, that this was indeed a, a, a prison. So they began, uh, once they had kind of gotten this, this information, uh, they began interviewing other temple members, asking if they wanted to leave, and several more you know, finally admitted that they did. And of course, Jones is, is over there freaking out that, you know, a lot of his, his congregation is, is wanting to leave and, and the house of cards is, is starting to come down all around him. And he, he kind of sees the, the writing on the wall again that this is, not, this is not going to last. This is, you know, the end. The end is coming. Uh, when Jones was confronted about the note, he pleaded with the congressman and his delegation to leave the camp and to just, quote, let us be, claiming that people lie, people lie. Uh, meaning, meaning Gosney, the guy who had uh, passed the note. Gosney's son was there and everything, and Jones kind of made the argument that, you know, if it's so bad here, why is he letting his son stay? To kind of, again, throw off the idea that, you know, things really were that bad, and there were actually people who who wanted to leave and didn't want to stay, which, of course, you know, incensed Jones, and he, he really took this as, as a personal attack and a personal affront, much like you know, other cult leaders do. Um, the the worst thing you can possibly do is express a desire to leave. However, in kind of in the background, while all of this is going on, and you know, the congressman and everybody was was really distracted trying to get to the bottom of this and find out, you know, who wanted to leave and and what you know what what was actually happening and what was going on. Uh, it started to kind of become a little bit chaotic, and people started to to scream and cry and beg to to. To leave once they, you know, once that first uh, impetus was knocked down, then everyone, the floodgates kind of opened, and everyone started to express these desires to to leave. And they they didn't, you know, they didn't want to stay here. They were here against their will, and they were essentially being held prisoner. While all this was going on, and then this, you know, this chaotic nature, uh, Jones's thugs, uh, his guards, began to prepare for more drastic measures, which were probably on the orders of Jones himself. So he began to, you know, again, the house of cards is coming down and things are starting to really get bad. And so Jones may have ordered his his guards to, you know, go grab their weapons and, and prepare for armed altercation if it came down to that. And so uh, a lot of the armed guards began to make up, you know, take position in a, in a perimeter 
around the pavilion and carrying, you know, holding machine guns. This, this again, really began to set the tone of, of what was about to happen. Jones was about, you know, Jones was prepared to take this all the way to the end. Ryan's delegation, of course, left in a hurry. Um, the afternoon of November 18th, after Temple member Don Sly attacked the congressman with a knife, the attack was thwarted by Ryan's security team. So they actually attempted to assassinate Congressman Leo Ryan. Um, and uh, once that happened, that was it. It, it. it was it was done. The congressman and his and his delegation team took off with, uh, I believe it was five or six um, Temple members who, who wanted to leave. And they were going to they were going to close the hammer. Uh, the, probably send the military, perhaps. Um, so once this happened, Jones became very, very erratic and very, very. Um, it, it became obvious that this that this charade could not go on any longer. Uh, Ryan and his delegation managed to take along fifteen Temple members who had expressed a wish to leave, and Jones made no further attempt to prevent their departure at that time. They made it all the way to the airstrip before things became much worse. In his desperation, Jones had sent armed guards to the airstrip to prevent the congressman and, more importantly, the members from leaving, which led to the Port Kaituma airstrip shootings. As members of Orion's delegation boarded two planes at the Port Kaituma airstrip outside of the compound, Jones's armed guards, called the Red Brigade, arrived on a tractor and trailer and began shooting at them. When this vehicle first approached, the gunmen were laying down in the back, hiding from view, so it was kind of like a, a small little tractor trailer looked like the bed of a pickup and they were lying down flat hiding in the back from from the delegation itself and when they got there they kind of pulled alongside and and blocked access to the airplane and when once they parked the temple or the the guards who were in the back laying down with the machine guns they got up and started shooting the gunman killed congressman ryan and four others one of the supposed defectors larry layton drew a weapon and began firing on members of the party from inside the other plane. So he was kind of a plant. He pretended that he wanted to leave, but he was actually given a gun and was told to, when the time is right, to start shooting from the plane. And so what, what the delegation thought was a, a member who wanted to leave and that they were actually trying to save was actually another guard. NBC cameraman Bob Brown was able to capture footage of the first few seconds of the shooting as he lay on the ground behind a tire. And he was killed in that position, which, uh, again, was marked by an abrupt end to that footage. And, and you can see that, that tape on, on YouTube. Um, and the camera's kind of positioned behind one of the airplane tires. And uh, just like that, it goes to static. Uh, five people were killed on the airstrip that day. Surviving the attack were future congresswoman Jackie Spear, which was, uh, who was a uh, Ryan staff member, Richard Dwyer, Bob Flick, Steve Sung, Tim Reiterman, Ron Cavers, Charles Krauss, and several defecting Temple members. And again, this was this kind of marked the point of no return. Uh, they had killed a United States congressman, and it was it was going to. And once news of this got out, they would probably send the military. You know, the United States would would send the military down to uh to bring back the people who wanted to leave and, and kind of initiate a, a rescue mission uh mass murder suicide in jonestown jones's prior statements that hostile forces would convert captured children to fascism would lead many members who strongly believed in the temple's leftist ideology to view the supposed suicide as valid all of his talk about the outside world coming in to take them now had real validity 
and he kind of spun this this congressman visit to as as a means for them to you know check them out and investigate and you know uh, to to come and get them and you know they're on their way now it's inevitable you know we we are going to be shut down they're going to kill us all with that reasoning jones and several members argued that the group should commit quote revolutionary suicide by drinking cyanide laced grape flavored flavor aid along with a sedative so to kind of curtail them being captured and being tortured and you know they were they're they're going to torture our children they're going to torture our seniors they're going to torture us and kill us and he didn't want any of that so he began kind of spinning this this idea that you know they're 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 on their way they're going to come get us you know we're not going to give them the satisfaction we're not going to give them the the uh the ability to control when we die we're going to have control over our own destiny and all of this type of talk and again he was on the loudspeaker constantly preaching about not really preaching but constantly sending this message that you know we need to be in control we need to take control back this is the only way that we can we can you know we can win jones had taken large shipments of cyanide into jonestown for several years prior to november 1978 having obtained a jeweler's license that would allow him to purchase the compound in bulk to purportedly clean gold so he had planned this for several years this wasn't this wasn't a spontaneous act this wasn't revolutionary it was premeditated murder um, he had this cyanide and he had began ordering it years ago. So, you know, he was kind of hoarding this and, and you know, keeping this on site for, for this particular day. So he, you know, he, he had been planning this for quite some time. On November 18th, 1979, 909 inhabitants of Jonestown, 206 of whom were children, died of apparent cyanide poisoning, mostly in and around the central pavilion. The children were given the flavor aid by their parents. And then the adults began to drink. Families were told to lie down together, and many did. Photos of the aftermath showed so many bodies, so much death. This is, it, it's a very, very hard case to research, a very, very hard case to discuss. The pictures are even worse. Just a, a field of bodies, and many of them were just lying face down in the mud, um, frothing at the mouth. Just body after body after body, just a sea of senseless death. The FBI later recovered a 45-minute audio recording of the mass poisoning in progress. And again, you can listen to this on, from several different sources. Um, it's available easily if you are interested in this and you want to hear what Jones was saying and, you know, the kind of the, the events of, of that day. I don't know why you would, but it, it is out there for you if you want to hear it. I am not going to play it on this podcast or, or I'm not going to post it on, on the show notes or on the website or anything. But uh, if you are interested, it is definitely out there. Um, it's a it's a tough listen, but uh, you know I I think it's important that uh, that it it be heard. Um, but I I want to warn you that it is not it is not a pleasant experience, um, especially knowing what all went down and what happened while that tape was going on. Uh, the reason given by Jones to commit suicide was again this consistent, previously stated conspiracy theory that uh, intelligence organizations were allegedly conspiring against the temple. He, he began, you know, he was very, very paranoid. He was, he was on drugs. He, he began taking a lot of drugs uh, back, when, back when they were still in California. And uh, that, you know, the, the military was going to come in here and, and, quote, parachute in here on us. And he was really convinced that they were going to invade him. And he was probably right. Uh, once, once, you know, the congressman's visit 
happened and, and everything that went down on the on the airstrip. Yeah, that that was probably a, a pretty fair assumption. But again, he, he consistently held these beliefs that that they were a target and they were you know gonna be gonna be tortured and and gonna be you know captured and all of these things they were gonna be overtaken and that's that's just kind of how he uh really again maintained a great deal of control and that is you know with them being completely isolated and not able to get any kind of independent <laughs> independent news um every, again everything they heard everything everything they knew about the outside world uh from the point that they got there until the point that they died came from Jones and he was the he was the only voice that that they heard and whatever he told them began to again kind of brainwash and you know they began to see him as the only true the one true source of of truth and uh his interpretations were were warped and uh probably likely not not very accurate but uh what he told them and how he managed to continuously ingrain in them that they were a target and they were consistently going to you know the 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 threats were always just just outside just outside and they were always trying to reach in and, and it was just a matter of time and they're you know they're right around the corner and this sense of urgency was very very important this sense of this was this was impending and they didn't have much time and everything was especially especially on that day um, when all of this was going and, you know, Jones can be heard saying over and over again, hurry, hurry, hurry. Um, you know, don't, don't think about it. Don't worry. Just, just, just do it. One temple member, Christine Miller began to express her reservations toward the beginning of the tape. But, uh, you know, she didn't, she kind of stood up and said, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to kill ourselves? Um, there's no, there's no reason for this. And, you know, Jones had been talking about going to Russia, uh, about, uh, you know, possibly relocating, uh, to to communist Russia and taking the temple over there because again you know that was kind of the seat of where his his views were manifest and uh, so she she brought up the idea well, you know can, can we still not escape to Russia is that still a, a is that still on the table why do we have to kill ourselves why do we have to end this like this and uh, Jones continued to play off that uh, you know Russia no longer wanted us and uh, Russia you know turned us down. Uh, that's no longer an option. We need to do this so that we aren't we aren't taken prisoner. We're not taken captive. And uh, again, this idea of of hurrying and pushing and always, you know, everything had to be rushed. And you know, he didn't want them to think about that. And he just wanted them to. And you you have to kind of understand that that they are completely insulated. That they have had no contact with loved ones or anyone outside of the group itself. And a lot of people, you know, don't understand this about about uh, cult psychology that the the leader is viewed as as a god. The leader is viewed as as uh, perfect, and they they tend to take their the the word of the leader as the word of God that he is somehow you know whether it's an interpreter or whether he speaks for God or he has the ear of God. Um, that, that's a very very common thread and very very common theme in these types of cult behaviors. And uh, so Jones, you know, even said, you know, I, you know, if you see me as your God, then I, I will be your God. And so that, that was, that was a, a constant permeating message. And 
did the the fact that this was all that they heard over and over and over again it really ingrained in their psychology and it really took over their ability to think for themselves and uh that that is a very very important factor and facet to to kind of understand why how this was able to to happen and then you know the Jonestown massacre has been studied uh, time and time again when we look at cults and when we try to examine how this can possibly happen and how someone can convince other people to to kill themselves and you know this is this is not the only instance of that you know heaven's gate cult and others have come down the pike that uh, have purported to commit suicide on on the command of their leader um but but this idea that you know someone finally standing up and and questioning uh really upset jones when when other members kind of started in and began crying and, and wailing uh jones council stop these hysterics this is not the way for people who are socialists or communists to die no way for us to die we must die with some dignity don't be afraid to die death is just stepping over into another plane and he continued to hammer this home over and over and over again. Uh, Jones's wife, Marceline, apparently protested to killing the children. She wanted to, to you know, maybe, maybe we should let the children, <laughs> children live. When she said that, she was forcibly restrained and then joined the others in poisoning herself. Uh, Tim Carter, a temple member who escaped into the woods during the tragedy, summed it up pretty perfectly. And uh, pardon the language here, but this is, this is a quote. Uh, he said, quote, we were just fucking slaughtered. Fucking slaughtered. There was nothing dignified about it. it. Had nothing to do with a revolutionary suicide. Nothing to do with making a fucking statement. It was just senseless waste. Senseless waste and death. End quote. At the end of the tape, Jones concludes, quote, We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. End quote. This tragedy resulted in the greatest single loss of human civilian life in a deliberate act until the events of September 11, 2001. Following the mass murder-suicide of all of his congregation, Jones was found dead at the stage of the Central Pavilion. He was resting on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to his right temple, which was, again, the coroners decided it was consistent with suicide. The autopsy on Jones's body confirmed that he died by suicide. The barbiturate pentobarbital was also found in his body at a level that would have been lethal were it not for his physiological tolerance. So he had been taking barbiturates for quite some time and they found a lethal amount in his body that would have killed an ordinary person, but he had built up such a physiological tolerance that he was able to think and function. Once the FBI and uh, the investigators, the uh, Guiana police and things began to descend on the area, Jones's body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the Atlantic Ocean. The letter. A letter written by a member who died that day and wished to remain anonymous was later recovered by investigators. Its contents are haunting even to this day. To whomever finds this note, collect all the tapes, all the writing, all the history. The story of this movement, this action, must be examined over and over. We did not want this kind of inning. We wanted to live, to shine, to bring light to a world that is dying for a little bit of love. There's quiet as we leave this world. The sky is gray. People file by us slowly and take the somewhat bitter drink. Many more must drink. A teeny kitten sits next to me watching. A dog barks. 
The birds gather on the telephone wires. Let all the story of this people's temple be told. If nobody understands, it matters not. I am ready to die now. Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on Earth. That is the story of Jim Jones in Jonestown. A very dark and sad time. A very dark and sad event. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. I think we're going to start interspersing a few episodes uh, dealing with missing persons. Uh, We're going to call them Bolo episodes. So uh, I think uh, starting next week, we might uh, might do uh, at least uh, maybe one or two episodes a week uh, discussing and kind of... uh, highlighting, you know, two or three perhaps missing, missing people. Just kind of a be on the lookout, uh, get, get that information out there. Hopefully, you know, maybe it'll be listened or heard by someone who, who knows some things. I don't know. But uh, if you like that idea and, and uh, think that that's a, something that we should do, leave a comment. Um, let me know. Anyway, uh, thank you again so much for listening. Uh, this is the Investigation Guru. My name is Sean. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. This has been The Investigation Guru, hosted by Sean and Dana, a presentation of Red Door Investigations in the DFW Metroplex of Texas, specializing in infidelity, fraud, child custody, missing persons, and more. Check out our website at reddoorinvestigations.com or on social media at Red Door PI. For more fascinating deep dives into real true crime, subscribe to the show today. Many elements of an investigation have to remain secret, but not this podcast. Our best advertising has always been word of mouth, so please share the feed with a friend today. And if you'd like to support the show, We offer some goodies on our Patreon at patreon.com slash invgurupod. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.